Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Man, what a weekend of basketball it's been. What a fantastic second round it's been, particularly this Sunday night of games. And I think we need to start in Philadelphia where... The 76ers, was it improbable? Maybe it was improbably. Tied this series up at two games apiece. And I think we have to start again with uh, the earliest revolution of a Watfo in Dunked on Prime history. Kudos to James Harden for making that the case. Harden knocked out the Watfo. We can pretend that games two and three didn't happen. We can do Harden that additional favor, and he still covered it. Eight, sorry, 16 field goals on 23 attempts, six and nine from the field, 42 points in 47 minutes for the Philadelphia 76ers as they eked out a 116-115 overtime victory. Lots to discuss down the end of, of this game, but in case you... Missed it for an earlier episode. Danny and I discussed the percentage chance that Harden would not score as many field goals the rest of the series as the 17 that he had in that game one masterpiece. And he got there in this one. And so second 40 point performance of this series by James Harden. Second game winning three pointer in the last 20 seconds of the game in this series by James Harden. You your mileage may vary on whether this or the game one one was the bigger playoff shot in his career. Probably this one with them staring a 3-1 deficit in the face, particularly given how poorly they had played in the fourth quarter and in large swaths of the overtime as well. And yeah, he just looked spry again, clearly came out with a mindset that he was going to attack early and he missed a couple of laps around the rim early but in the end 17 to 23 was fantastic he was more under control got to his mid-range shot got a, a huge floater late also uh and really was the engine that Harden and bead pick and roll for really the first time in this series got going in a way that the celtics could not deal with that and James Harden being an equal partner, if not the superior one to Joel Embiid down the stretch was fantastic for Philly. Part of what made this even more stunning from a Harden perspective than game one is that this was the shortest turnaround in the entire series. This was about in the 36 hour range. It wasn't, you know, 48 or anything like that because they played the afternoon game in game four after playing in um, a straight evening game in game three. So I thought that was really going to hurt Philly. I thought that was going to hurt Harden and Embiid for different reasons. Harden because the more rest he's had, the better. Embiid because he's, of course, coming back from this knee injury. And it was a great performance overall from, from Harden 
and had those big shots had the you know i thought i thought that his early his his beginning performance was extremely important as well had a, had a couple of like i think it was more the if memory serves was the second quarter yeah 15 points six of eight including three of three from three in that second quarter scored or assisted on a 10 of the 13 philadelphia made hoops in that quarter yeah and really got philly out to uh, a mid teens lead in the harden only minutes right at the start of the was massive second quarter and the thing if we're going to kind of go chronologically here well i guess to finish up on harden he said after game three oh i usually make pretty good decisions i think i was doing that here but i'll look at the film well clearly when he looked at the film he saw that he wasn't making good decisions and that he definitely needed to shoot more and it must be incredibly frustrating to try to game plan against him i guess it's useful that you can at least kind of get an idea of which harden it's going to be in the game by about through the first quarter and then adjust accordingly but it's got to be pretty crazy to be like oh yeah this guy just either does absolutely nothing or he's gonna put 40 points on us and he did it again by the way Without the free throw line, his two lowest free throw games in this series, hilariously, have been the two 40-pointers. Absolutely wild. How did you think Joel Embiid looked out there? I thought he tired in the second and particularly the fourth. It was the second straight game where Boston is trying to attack him at the rim. And in the first half, they could just get absolutely nothing. They looked awful after a a quick 6 of 8 jag to start. They went on a 6 out of 28 just absolute deep freeze and a ton of that was Joel and in the first half the Celtics were 6 of 18 in the paint and only 4 of 7 at the rim just a comically low number of rim attempts for a half and Embiid was just blocking everything around they're terrified of him and then he just didn't have that same level of energy after halftime. It, I don't know that there was some massive adjustment, but he just was kind of in that, like on the baseline, helping without helping on shooters. He kind of got stuck above the break a little bit more as well. And so Boston hits their first seven shots in the restricted area in the third quarter as they kind of get back into it, cut it to five. But then Philly's offense started cooking. Like Philly couldn't hit a three in the first half and particularly in the first quarter. And it ended up being a 33-33 third quarter in the end. So a lot changed in the third, but it, it was still Philly totally in control going into the fourth uh, up by nine anything else from uh, the meat of the game you wanted to talk about here individual performances strategies that stuck out to you a couple of different things um first off another challenging stretch for jason tatum first half he was one of nine from the field missed all three of his threes did contribute some on the defensive end and but he had a real struggle overall and something else i i I will admit that i've been higher on the celtics overall in this series than probably most including you and a part of that is this theory that i've had of of philadelphia's defense which a was much better in game four than it was in game three overall and i thought that particularly in the first half and then it comes into play later on the celtics offensive in particular process was shaky like they weren't pushing as hard attacking as aggressively in transit like they weren't as consistent in transition they had some times where they were doing it 
And they weren't because they were getting into their action so late, they weren't forcing those multiple efforts, multiple reads by the limited Philadelphia defenders. I'm not saying all their defenders are limited, just the limited guys. And both of those elements gave them a much tougher hill to climb. And you could see the difference in that fourth quarter when they started getting more aggressive. Yeah, and Tatum was a, a big part of that. I think he actually managed to get himself into the game more with the, his work in the floor grain, game, rebounding, had a couple of blocks, uh, got on the offensive glass. Uh, I thought his, he had his best defensive game of the series, just overall causing havoc uh, as a nail defender and a help defender around the rim. And what were his stats in the second half in overtime? Because he was really fantastic during those three periods. 22 points on 8 of 11 from the field, 9 rebounds, 4 assists, 2 blocks, and a plus 8 in about 27 minutes of action. And they, they definitely, as we'll talk about down the end of the game, which I want to focus on a ton, uh, Philly really didn't have the answers uh, for him. Malcolm Brogdon was big for Boston, ended up playing 36 minutes, uh, had 19 points, and again, not the greatest passing game for him. I thought he missed open teammates a number of times, either on a one more or guys rolling to the rim. But he also ended up scoring on a fair number of those possessions himself anyway. He did. And, and he did get taken out in the overtime, which we'll, we will once again talk about. It's rare, actually, that Brogdon would close games for them in the regular season when everyone was healthy. But it, he's been out there it, it's, at it's the been end bizarre. of a lot of these. Joe Mazzula has, in the playoffs, seemed like he trusts Brogdon meaningfully more than Derek White. I It depends on the circumstance. I actually like White better in most of those, especially because he's... White, it, there are two big things. One, he's significantly better defensively. And two, Brogdon has a couple of weird offensive foibles. One is that he gets tunnel vision, and the other is that he just, like, sometimes he'll just throw a straight-up weird pass. He did that at the end of, of game one. And I would rather have the, like, more consistent takes less off the table player but there are you know there i'm not saying joe mazula is a bad coach or an idiot for for doing something different than i said but i personally especially given the Celtics other talent that you're not running through brogdon in those big moments i would put white out there pretty consistently i think he came to that conclusion in the overtime but brogdon particularly in the first half was really important with the way he was pushing the pace and you mentioned how they really were struggling to get into actions quickly. Oh, that's the one thing that Malcolm Brogdon is going to do is make quick decisions, put pressure on the defense, get into the paint in a way that the rest of their players, other than Jalen Brown, really weren't doing at all. We saw Harden get off even with Jalen Brown guarding him, but the Sixers did some nice stuff to get him away from that. And then when Harden had his biggest stretch... A lot of it was when Braun was out of the game. His normal rotation is to sit at the beginning of the second. That's when Harden comes in and they try to spread the floor with that bench unit. And Harden really cooked during that. So Missoula actually changed up the rotation. I think in part because Tatum was going really well and in part because he wanted Braun to specifically match up with Harden at the start of the fourth. And then the C's did a really nice job of defending right at the start of the fourth. I thought this was actually an opportunity, even though Boston was getting back into the game, that they had way more chances than they were able to take advantage of during yeah, they that left a, time. They left a lot on the table. I think that like yeah. missed, missed shots. They had two missed, like totally biffed wide open layups. Yeah. Yeah. Brogdon and Tatum. Tatum missed a free throw. He would also miss one late in the fourth. 
and Doc Rivers had no choice but to bring Joel uh, back in pretty quickly. Tatum came back in after only a 90-second rest as well. He's been playing a ton of minutes in this series. And a few other things that were pretty interesting. Oh, the switching from Philly, like doing that a little bit more often, making the Celtics work. And I thought until the fourth quarter, again, I'm the process from Boston. If if your opponent is going to switch more often, but they're still playing limited defenders, you use that to your advantage. And later on, we'll talk about it. There was a lot of maxi on Tatum early on. I thought they just kind of let things let things fall where they may too often. And, you you know, like start your actions early, get what you want and then go see if what else sticks out to me from the media game. Defending Embiid was fascinating as was defending Harden clearly the Sixers wanted to get Brogdon into as many actions as possible he was the perceived weak link for them and that went pretty well they went with a number of different things Al Horford was fantastic on Embiid in the fourth quarter blocked his jumper a couple of times and then had another block on him at the rim as well and to the point where they didn't really want Embiid going one-on-one at against Horford in the post he did hit one really tough turnaround on him I think in the overtime going right shoulder late in the clock but that wasn't a great look necessarily and Sixers just couldn't score in the fourth quarter they scored 15 points and really just were not getting any open looks they were very languid getting into their offense you felt like oh yes they were yeah there was a ton of fatigue from Harden and for Embiid from going against these guys as Boston they tried Grant Williams at center a little bit although he didn't play much in the second half they tried Horford and Rob Williams together at the start of the fourth they even went with Rob Williams on him by himself Uh, and Embiid did draw one comical pump fake foul on Rob but he held up reasonably well other than that I don't love that process for Boston because I do think Rob is just going to be a complete foul matting it on Embiid but they got they got away with it enough as uh, they were making their comeback Jalen Brown just continues to be totally underrated maybe even underutilized 23 points, 10 of 16, did most of his damage again in the first quarter when nobody else could do anything. But I do think that his hard driving provides an element that's just harder for this slow-footed Philly team to deal with. Tatum was pretty good down the end, so you can't really complain too much about him getting too many of the touches. And he threw some nice passes. Like, I thought Boston overall, their offense looked good late. So I'm not going to complain too much about Braun not getting as many attempts. But you'd like to see him get maybe more than one more attempt than Marcus Smart got. That would be one one point just briefly on that. Jalen Brown's last two point attempt came with five minutes to go in the third quarter. Mm. Um, I, I actually let me check overtime too. I know that I know that was true at the end of regulation. Let me just make sure. Yes, he, J, Jalen Brown did not take a single shot in overtime. So yes, that is still true. Let's turn to the fourth though. And once Al Horford got a dunk off another pass fake, Boston finally takes the lead there previous lead to that one had been 19 to 17 and Harden just had a lot of plays down the stretch he grifted a couple of free throws which I thought was a ridiculous shooting foul on the right side of the floor we never got to see a replay of that continuing a theme from the Denver Phoenix game of not being able to see replays on fouls that probably shouldn't have been shooting fouls I can't recall if they were in the bonus at that time or not but gets a couple of free throws to tie it at 98 Tatum had a great drive against Maxi, they went after Maxi over and over and over again down the stretch and largely got good stuff out of it uh joel fouled him clear foul then horford blocked and beads free throw line jumper smart hit a huge three 
And then I think this was, no, it was earlier. There was a play that drove me crazy where Harden had the ball late clock. Smart was guarding him. This was early. It was, I think it was early fourth quarter. And Smart, it was like five seconds left. And Smart just backed off of Harden's step back. And it's like, well, that's all he's going to do. But this one was a pull up, but I don't think it was the same pull up. Then they're trying, all of this stuff is coming off of the Tatum pick and roll going at Maxi. Brogdon hits a huge three as Smart just runs pick and roll with Tatum. That's what they're doing to then get the switch of Maxi onto Tatum on the right side of the floor. Then they, they switched up to just have Harris basically not even hedge at all. So they just gave up an easy four on three going downhill to Marcus Smart and help came and Brogdon is wide open on the left wing to put the Celtics up by five with two minutes left there were massive favorites at that point Harden had another just great plays getting into the lane under control step back two-point jumper to cut it to three and yeah and that was the one where Brogdon just gave up a straight line drive right or a blow by might not have been straight line and then after that Brogdon three the Sixers had called timeout they one of their under three timeouts so you know Doc Rivers thought it was serious but they couldn't deal with the Tatum pick and roll with Maxi involved or with him really as the screener and Maxi on the ball. So they switched up. They decided to go to a switch double and then smart got stuck. They never really got ball movement out of that double. And he had to take a, a difficult step back. Joel tries to post up, can't get anything. He has to kick it to Harris in the corner. Desperation, great contest by Tatum, air ball. And as the shot clock's about to expire, P.J. Tucker, incredible offensive rebound and one. And he had actually been put back into the game by Rivers at that preceding timeout. He had been out uh, before Mm -hmm. that because they wanted to get more shooting on the floor. And I, I think you can make the argument that Boston didn't quite help off of Tucker enough, but because of his offensive rebounding, you can't just completely leave him. He gives you enough, particularly late in games, that clearly reinserting him was the right move. Hits that massive and one, makes the free throw, and then... Is that, yeah, the next play there is the... It um, is is the bullshit smart grift going to set the screen. And and the referees union was doing one of their watch-along parties on Twitter. And after the game, they had a self-congratulatory tweet about how well they did. Nah. Okay, PJ Tucker, a slight hold, smart, felt that, goes down. Oh, that's a point of education. Okay. There's 51 seconds left in a tie game that's going to decide the series. Like, you just, they're in the bonus. Just let that call go there. It just, you can say, hey, hands off. You can, there's just, you can, it wasn't an action that was going to decide the play in any way. It, and it's fucking Marcus Smart. How are you not? Yeah, PJ Tucker pulled him to the ground. That's what happened there. Come on. And so that gives, that gives yeah. Marcus Smart, so it's a tie game. Smart has two free throws with 51 seconds to go. He makes both of those. And then you get another huge Al Horford play. Yeah, it blocked Embiid on a nice drive from the foul line and another Sixers offensive rebound. They just had two huge offensive rebounds in the last two seconds or last two minutes of regulation. They had three huge offensive rebounds in the overtime. And then Harden hits another huge shot on a driving floater. Just the type of shot, those two pointers, tough twos that he just was turning down or missing in games two and three, but making in game one, he he made that one. So Boston goes no timeout. I think Boston got the 
the ball. And this is one where they're going to try to hold the ball till the end. So it doesn't matter that they're not going quickly. They sure. get into get it into Tatum. He gets double teamed again. They're doing that switch double. Drives in, throws a, a great pass back out to Smart. And Smart just missed pretty much a wide open three-pointer that could have won the game. So we went into overtime and don't need to do every possession overtime. I do want to do the end. But I think Bob Vulgaris was saying like, hey, why did they take out Brogdon? And my answer to that was that he blows a switch on Maxi's first bucket. A nice little play call there by Rivers just to get him going downhill. And Brogdon is guarding Maxi, and it, he and Harden just kind of exchange. There's not even close to a pick. And so Brogdon is just assuming that Jalen Brown is going to pick up his man Maxi driving to the rim. And Jalen Brown is like, well, they never screened. Why am I picking him up? He was a little too late. Maxi gets a layup. And then the possession after that, Brogdon commits a, a foul. They're trying to play conventional pick and roll defense now against Joel and Harden, which eh, maybe you can question that strategy. And so he holds Joel Embiid. And then Harden with 2.7 on the shot clock has nowhere to go. And Brogdon trips him from behind. And so he got his fifth foul. And at that point, Missoula took him out, went back to white. Well, yeah. And I thought they should, especially when you're not leaning heavily on Brogdon from a creation standpoint, the, 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 to me, the difference between Brogdon and, and white offensively is not as important as the defense one. And Brogdon's shot was coming down in this one. So, I, I mean, there are fair distinctions there. Um, I'm trying to think if there are any in the early part of overtime. But, well, just generally, once they go back to Brown... Braun is generally the guy now guarding Harden, and you could tell they are just so locked in on that packet pocket pass. Like Jalen Brown's hand is like basically scraping the floor as he's trying to get over the screen and stay with Harden to prevent that little flick flick of the wrist left-handed bounce pass to Embiid but Harden just as good of a passer as he is was able to get it to him a number of times pretty well uh, and in some of these actions. I mentioned the three offensive rebounds that Philly got. Harris ducked in front of Tatum at one point and was able to tip it out. And Philly was able to get that back. And there's another one where P.J. Tucker is among three Celtics and manages to pressure Al Horford enough so that he just lost the ball out of bounds. And I think and, that, Embiid, and, and Philly scored on that one, right? That was the Embiid one. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, that was a second one. And all these are coming off of like missed threes too, where guys just didn't quite box out well enough. And then Embiid got another one off a missed Harden spot up in the last couple of minutes uh, that retained possession for them as well. He got a loose ball foul on Horford. Embiid was really, it just did not have the effect defensively in the overtime. There's one play where Harden was should have directed Marcus Smart into the screen, but Smart rejects it, comes right down the lane, and Bede is guarding Horford in the corner, but he's just standing straight up. Like, maybe you're, you don't want to give up the three there, but at least, you know, fake towards him or something, just anything that you could do. Like, he just literally stood there as Marcus Smart goes in for a layup. Smart uh, gets fouled from behind by Harden for an and one. Then uh, later on, Tatum gets a drive and Embiid does help and Horford in and out's a three-pointer. That could have really put uh, Philly into difficulty. Yeah, because if they he made that one, they would have been up four with about a minute and a half to go. Then there was another huge play where Harden, who redeemed himself in many ways in this, but he st tracked back on a switch where Harden, or, uh, Harden was able to track back on a smart pass 
to, I think it was Horford cutting down the lane and actually got the steal. That led to Joel getting the ball at the nail on another nice Harden pass to him out of the pick and roll, gets by Horford, and then there was the crazy block charge there that ended up being sustained as a charge. I disagreed with the adjudication of it to me, but I think the refs called it the way the NBA has generally been officiating it this season, which is that it's more about the feet being set and taking in the chest than whether the player moved from the snapshot. I disagree with the way they're calling it, but I so I, I thought Philly was hurt by that. It was, and it would have been an and one for Embiid too to give him the lead. But Smart gets outside of the restricted area. He's not really moving forward. Embiid tries to take a Euro step around him, but it's probably late enough that Embiid's path wasn't really going around Smart. It was still pretty much going through where Smart was. Smart also, though, is like he kind of moves his torso maybe six inches to the right, but not his feet as Embiid tries to Eurostep around and to make sure that he takes it in the chest. I think I probably is okay with the charge, with, especially with that being the case on the floor. It really was bang, bang. I think that where Smart had set up and as late as Embiid tried to begin the Eurostep, that whether Smart moves his chest or not, he was going to run him over in some fashion. So I, I, I was okay with it, but I certainly understand how people could see that one differently. Then there was that Horford missed corner three, and Harden had the open three, and Bede kept it alive with a loose ball foul, and then that put Embiid to the line as well and gave him, oh no, I'm sorry, Al Horford committed another shooting Separate foul, foul yeah. After that, and that that too was over, sorry, the play-by-play confused me there, but it was two fouls in a row on Horford. That again was great pocket pass. Not really a pocket pass because it wasn't a bounce pass. He had to go high because they're trying to take that away. And Embiid was able against that conventional pick and roll defense. Horford's getting back, but even just using that slight momentum of Horford still trying to recover, Embiid was able to uh, attack and draw foul. Then there was the Tatum push-off play. I'll set up how it happened, and then I want to get your opinion on it. This time, they had the guy that Maxi was covering, White, slip out of the screening action early with Tatum as the ball handler. Tatum found White. Help had to come. They throw it to the corner, and Maxi kind of was the guy left back on Tatum, left Tatum. They get it back to Tatum. Maxi does recover, and then Tatum creates some space with that forearm. Huge step back three, and it looked like the Sixers might be done with 38 seconds left. I I think that conceptually, offensive players again. I, I it's kind of the the phrase I use is craft. Like the concept is craft. Like just shoving a dude is not craft. However, it wasn't a full arm thing. And making making a rule that's significantly more stringent on the offense than the current one, like it, it, it it's going to become a lot more murky. Like that's just the way the way it would work. That could be worth it. Just going to be a lot more murky, and also would lead to a lot more aggressive sells flops embellishments whatever term you want to use but in a kind of basketball justice world to me that would be an offensive foul like jason tatum created the space by just shoving tyrese maxi and got the three yeah it's not necessarily they've cracked down on it some right it used to be as long as you didn't fully extend your arm on that it wasn't called as a push-off 
But you're, and Jokic, there are a billion guys in the league who do this. Jokic, Giannis, Pascal Siakam, James Harden. Yeah, Doc Rivers' crusade against the call was rather ironic, particularly when his team won the game. But even if you're not extending your arm, what you can do is you can transfer your force, just your body's momentum into the other player just by holding that up. Like you don't, if you don't have that forearm there to ward the guy off, number one, you can't get into the guy's body because he could just go right through you and steal the ball from you that's one and then two especially like you have to be so strong to not get pushed backwards on a move like that and Tyrese Maxey like the part of the reason I would say that we've seen smaller players just be totally unable to defend bigger players off the dribble these days is because of this forearm move now because they can being taller and stronger all of a sudden is an advantage off the dribble against a smaller player which didn't necessarily used to be the case and here maxi cuts him off beautifully he's right in front of him and then tatum not only are you able to knock the guy backwards but you like getting transferring your momentum to the other guy allows you to stop much more easily as well and get on balance to shoot a step back or make a move crossing over as well so tatum like he doesn't need that advantage against a guy eight inches shorter than him like it it like there's literally nothing that you can do there if you're Tyrese Maxey and he didn't fall down I mean that's the other thing too it's like you're never going to get that call unless you fall down and we don't want to encourage people more falling down either but so I'm with Doc Rivers on on this one although again what's good for the goose is good for the gander on that one for old Doc but huge shot by Tatum still three-pointer to go up to and this will be lost to his a couple of things will probably be lost to history doc only has one timeout left he lost the, the first one on the challenge 38 seconds left down two do you want to call timeout there do you not add with only one left it's a little iffy i probably would still call it in that situation to try to get the two for one especially with this team who just is never going to push the ball up instead they try to attack this too will be lost for history Harden had an easy layup at the rim and he passed redux. out of it. What? Ben Simmons redux. Second well, round. I thought there, there was one in game three that was that was more like that, I think. I mean, it would have been lightly contested. Could have tied the game. He tries to throw a pass to the corner for a three. And Derek White is right there. And he just, the Sixers were incredibly lucky that his deflection just went out of bounds and gave them another chance at it. But James Harden and Joel Embiid did take advantage of that. I thought it was interesting that Doc takes the timeout there when there's not 26 seconds left, not enough time for a two for one at that point and leaves PJ Tucker on the floor. Didn't go with like George Niang or something like that. And PJ had been playing well. He'd gotten a couple offensive rebounds, but you'd still think maybe we'd go with Niang here. So Boston responds by putting Al Horford in the corner on PJ Tucker. And so what they wanted to do apparently was they're going to switch everything out of the timeout, not let them get that conventional pick and roll pass to Embiid, and then hopefully have Horford, who had been fantastic blocking Embiid, available at the rim and also down there to rebound. But Embiid gets Tatum switched on him. They had smart on him initially and is able to drive to the middle. It seemed right away, it, it kind of surprised me that they went with this thing with Horford where he wasn't going to help that much because it seemed like almost their strategy was we're just going to let him be go one-on-one and hey you know what if he ties the game with the two-pointer so be it we'll get a chance to come back worst case scenarios over time but then at the last minute Jalen Brown tries to come from behind and beat I thought as these double teams go it was a decent decision 
totally much better one when you're not up two, but Embiid really made a great play. Uh, the growth in his playmaking, he saw that Harden was wide open in the corner. Brown also, another thing that would be lost history, made an incredible closeout, I thought, on Harden to make him rush it a little bit. But James Harden, the spot up three, that's the shot that he just literally wouldn't take in Brooklyn. He is like, his brain like wasn't even wired to take it when he got to Philly. And he's really worked on that. He's really worked on the mid-ranger, the floater. And yeah, he has not been consistent in the series, but he has been able to put together two great games. And hey, a loss only counts as one loss. And these really close wins count as one win, and we have a two-two series. Oh, there are a couple more things I want to discuss. So, yeah, yeah. start with start with the decision by Jalen Brown. I'm sympathetic because it looked like Joel Embiid was going to get a clean look, and you're kind of coming from a weird passing angle to try to make it happen. However, from a EV standpoint, the worst that happens unless there's a foul, if you concede the look, I mean, a there's a pretty good chance that he doesn't make it in the first place. Like, they're just basketball shots are hard to make, and as long as you don't foul yeah he was in pretty good he was gonna score i think i i, 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 I would give pretty, that a 70 a good chance but not a hundred percent i would give that a 70 percent chance that he was gonna but score then get so there. let's even game game out of 70 so then there's a 30 percent chance to miss it of course there's possibility there that they get the offensive rebound something else happens however in that 70 percent chance then what happens is roughly 20 seconds to go you get the last shot of regulation and the the realistic worst that happens is like 95th percent you know like fifth percentile outcome is you go to oh is you go to an to another overtime and when you consider the celtics are the younger team when you consider that brogdon was really the i mean the sixers didn't really have guys in foul trouble either tucker could have gotten there in a second overtime um that i think and when you i mean boston <laughs> depending on how you talk about the next play like i would rather be in that spot and i, I understand why jalen brown did what he did however I and it seemed like Missoula did push this, and I don't think he's ever going to throw Jalen Brown under the bus. I I just think you have to grin and bear it if Embiid makes that makes that shot. Yeah, I think that's right. And then and, so yeah. So then the next big thing that people were ripping Missoula for is Harden makes the three. Sixers are up one with 19 seconds to go. Missoula still has two timeouts, and there was the clamor, which of course randomly only happens when things don't work out for the team that oh you have to call a timeout there i don't think you have to call a timeout right away especially against the philadelphia 76ers because they can put some meaningfully better defenders on the floor and yes you yeah can call and, and they were defense. running every single thing at tyrese maxi so you didn't want to sure. lose the ability to attack you, wanna, you didn't want to lose that ability and 19 seconds you you want to go quickly but you have enough time to to do that so this happened yeah. another D- time down one at this point but down just just so we're clear i don't know if the celtics were clear on that but just so they, we're they, clear. It, it does not it does not appear that they were and so down one in that circumstance i am completely on board against an opponent like this with no timeout that does not mean you wait to get into your action for 12 damn seconds and just see what happens. And that there was another game in these playoffs that this I had this exact same same thing. It might have been a Celtics game. I don't remember for sure. And it's like, no, you don't call the timeout right away. But when nothing is happening and you're not playing with urgency, you're not getting anything, then you have to call the timeout because then the odds have shifted enough and you need to get something straight. You can call an ATO, whatever you're going to whatever you're going to do. And so. I, I don't I, I you rewatched it I think you might have might have 
kept a track on the timeline here. I think it was somewhere around 14 seconds is where they should have called the timeout because nothing was really going. And then you do that. Oh, that was the other one was Budenholzer was, was the other one where that was the case. And so then then things shift. You're not getting anything going. You're not really you're not really making things happen. Then you need to call timeout because in these circumstances, yes, you want to get a shot off, but you ideally want to get a shot off early enough that if it misses, you aren't dead, like that you have a chance to get an offensive rebound or to foul and to get another shot. Because remember, they're only down one. Even if you miss the shot foul, you can get a chance to tie the game. And you still have two timeouts. You can advance the ball. And they just didn't know what they were doing was the problem. That's why they went so slow and they were kind of walking into it. And Smart brings it up. Tatum just kind of walks. He's guarded by Harris. Tatum doesn't even get the ball until there's seven seconds left. Then Smart thinks he's supposed to set the screen. Tatum has to wave him away. And Tatum throws the pass. Like, he got good penetration. Like, he had Smart open. They had Derek White open at the top. Like, it it worked. He blew by Maxi again. And unfortunately, Tatum just didn't have as much time as he thought. Embiid did come over this time. I don't think Tatum could have taken the layup there. Maybe he could have pulled up for a floater earlier. But he releases the pass with about 1.5 seconds. And I'll credit Marcus Smart. He quick shot it. He made it. He actually came a lot closer to getting it off than anybody could have thought he would have, but it clearly was, in fact, late. And despite the fact that he the ball went in, Philly now lead or uh, has a 2-2 tie in this series. And Seth just went through this recently. He said that since 2004, series tied 2-2. 72% of the time I have gone to the home game is actually a little bit lower than I would have thought. Maybe that number has come down in recent years. And there have been a number of series recently, of course, where it was tied 2-2 and the road team was able to win it. We saw that just last round with Golden State against Sacramento. A lot of drama here. A lot of interesting stuff. Philly barely escapes. Who has the advantage going for it? Let's throw a home court advantage out of it here. Just in terms of the run of play, who is playing better right now? Who just has more advantages over the other team? Boston. Boston has won. I'm shocked won. that you said that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they've won two games going away and they lost two games close. Yeah. That you have that. They they have home court. I think they have superior talent. Yeah. I mean, you posed it to me. You kind of do the answer. I, yeah. Do well, you, yeah. Do you right. substantially disagree? No, I think Boston just has more matchup advantages in this series. And particularly given the inconsistency of Harden, that if Harden has a bad game, Philly's kind of drawing dead. Embiid has continued to get better. You still wonder about his ability to finish in these games, particularly defensively. And, and he was he had another 30-point game in this one, 11 to 26 from the field, 12 to 15 from the foul line. But Boston, like unless Embiid, because in both of these first halves, in Philly, I think Philly has looked like the better team. And most of that's been because of Embiid's rim protection and Boston's inability to get to the cup. And then that really has changed in both of the seconds half. Why is that? Are they just doing a better job? Are they finding better stuff schematically? Yeah, maybe to some degree, but also just Embiid has not had anywhere near the same energy defensively after halftime. And is he going to get stronger as things go along? I still think he's not 100% right. He's not normally going to be like getting three shots blocked in the fourth quarter by Al Horton 
Horford, for example, although Horford is maybe the best one-on-one defender of him in the league. And the Celtics still have a bunch of other stuff that they can try. They just have more guys who can get hot in a given game as well. So, and and then I ruled this out at the beginning and discuss it, but they do, of course, have the home court as well. So, yeah, I would lean Boston, but it's just remember, nothing is ever easy for the Boston Celtics. That's (laughs) that's why I picked the series in six. So, and there will, I mean, Philly is at minimum going to have a home game to push this to a game seven. So I do think the most likely outcome at this point, you would say is Celtics and seven, right? Sure. Yeah. So and that's uh, anything can happen there. And God, if James Harden has like a great performance to beat the Celtics in Boston Garden in a game seven, I, it just, I, I'm going to, I think I'll have seen everything and I'll just be ready for the apocalypse <laughs> at that point. But uh, yeah, so I, I do think it's just, if Harden and B can play the way they played tonight, Philly has a chance. If not, then no, they don't. Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the Bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside and things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout easy remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us anyone who's seen our youtube videos knows that i don't wear formal stuff all the time so when it's time to dress up rather than dress down i highly recommend inochino they were the official outfitter of my wedding i got my tux from there all my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well i felt really good about having them be the outfit of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly because when you go somewhere else you're not going to get something that's made for you so why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you and not only does indochino have the suits that made them famous but now they've got everything blazers pants women's wear outerwear designed and made for you hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from european wools linen cottons tons of colors tons of patterns you can customize things like the lapel the vents the pockets and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style level up your game with indochino go to indochino.com use the code capspace user capspace we talk about all the time here on the program you get 10 percent off any purchase of 399 dollars or more that's 10 percent off at indochino indochino indochino.com and don't forget that capspace code to let them know that you came from us
Speaking of stars playing well, what a fucking game that was in Phoenix. I wish it had been just a little bit closer at the end, but just the level that some of those guys were playing at in that game was just about as good as you're ever going to see in a basketball game. Super duper fun. And Booker, Jokic, Durant in particular, just completely delivering. We wondered how Devin Booker was going to respond to that ludicrously efficient game three. 36 points, 14 of 18 from the field. 14 of 18 from the field. 14 of 18 from the field. And he got to the free throw line. And yeah, also, yeah, a little bit. Well, mostly it was KD doing that. Uh, mostly, but. but and they and but also twelve assists for Booker. We'll get into why that was the case. And so he was he was massive. And I mean, you look at Devin Booker's shot chart, which doesn't even tell the full Booker story. Four or five in the restricted area had some good finishes. Four or six upper paint. Three or three long two. Three or four above the break three. And then those six free throws. He made five of those. And then Jokic became only the, depending on how we're defining terms here, the third center in NBA playoff history with a 50 plus point game joining Wilt Chamberlain doing it four times, of course, and Bob McAdoo in 75. And I mean, Olajuwon never had 50. Kareem never had 50. It's, it's incredible. Shaq. Shaq. Moses Malone. Also, by the way, like it is kind of funny that Wilt only had four, but when you think about how much shorter the playoffs were, then it's not that surprising. And that a lot of well, well, if he averaged fifty for a game uh, for a season, it's pretty remarkable actually that he's only, it only had four in the playoffs. I, it kind of shows a little bit like how that fifty was a little kind of funny money if he just only ever had fifty. He averaged fifty for a season. He only ever had four fifty-point games in the playoffs for his career. That's that does show a little bit that like that was uh I, I'm trying to th- do a that basic lookup of the proportion of Wilt Chamberlain's playoff games that occurred against the Celtics, and the answer is high. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. And and Bill Russell d- did a great job defending him. But uh, back to this one, it's pretty amazing that Nikola Jokic could have 53 points and 11 assists, and I don't think he was the best player on the floor tonight. It was Booker. Yeah, it really was. So yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about why it was that Devin Booker was so good because it really everything that was happening for the Suns in this game and particularly in the fourth quarter it all was him. Well, I shouldn't say it all because Kitty was pretty fucking good too. But but Booker to me was was he was the guy that they had no answer for. And that started at the beginning of the game where the tactical wrinkle that Michael Malone brought out for Game Four was more aggressive doubles of Devin Booker. Unfortunately for Malone and the Nuggets, they started doing that with the closest defender when the closest teammate for Devin Booker was Kevin Durant and Durant drilled an open three and I think he got a clean two shortly thereafter so yeah strategy is a lot less viable if you're doing the double there than helping off of Josh Okoge who started both halves and but then later on it it evolved they went away from this the Nuggets went away from that approach when it was being beaten in part because Booker was doing some nice passes and then among other approaches the Suns started running it wasn't a double drag screen it was just like a st- like two screens like you can call it staggered if you want to but just like two screens and Devin Booker was getting getting creating advantages and it wasn't always getting downhill and getting buckets for himself one of the definitive stretches of this game was in the fourth quarter where most of those did not come to be Devin Booker shots instead it became surprise standout Landry Shamit who took six three-pointers in the fourth quarter and yeah, it was so telling that remember at the start of the series they had 
they're like, okay, Chris Paul, when you run a pick and roll, we're going to have Jokic in a drop. We're, we're not sure you can beat you, you can beat us with that. And they they put two on the ball with the KD and Booker pick and rolls. By the end of this game, they thought not. Nah, it wasn't a straight drop from Jokic, but it was more of like a catch and then retreat. Whereas Booker, they're like, oh no, we need to put two on the ball right now and get it out of his hands. And that's, I think, Michael Malone's philosophy. He wasn't going to get beat by Booker the same way as he did last time. And so Booker beat him a different way. And just the passing that he had out of those double teams, and I thought, and I'll I'll give credit again to uh, the four-point play on Twitter who's been all over this since game two of the efficacy of these East-West Suns actions that string out the defense if they're going to put two on the ball and pick and roll, and then Booker can make great decisions. Booker found direct passes to the corner for Landry Shamit. Then he had this unbelievable look to DeAndre Ayton for a layup uh, under the rim uh, and one when he kind of looked to the corner and sent the backside scrambling out there and then threw it to Aiton up against a much smaller player. Just every single time he was making the right decision and those 12 assists playoff career high for Booker. Uh, he did have five turnovers, but a couple of those were just offensive fouls. Well, and and uh, he, Nate, yeah. one of the most stunning parts of Devin Booker's game, 36 points, zero in the fourth quarter, but he had four assists. Yeah, and they were, of course, running everything through him. I think KD got an open three in the fourth as well. And and Shamit and now Shamit. I, I mean, the biggest development I would say of these two games is that Landry Shamit showing that he can defend Jamal Murray well enough, and then he can stay on the floor, and that being able to give. And then TJ Warren being able to hold up well enough also. He only played 19 minutes, but he closed these last two games. I don't think they can extend him much beyond that. But to have two guys who are just not going to completely embarrass themselves defensively, but then are also actually going to make shots, now Denver does have no answers on defense because you've got a roller, you've got Devin Booker and Kevin Durant, and then you've got two guys who are going to knock down shots. And I, with Denver's personnel in particular, and particularly the way that Booker is going, they they can't guard him with any of their guys one-on-one uh or certainly not two-on-two in a pick and roll as well like there is really no schematic answers they tried the keep Jokic out of the pick and roll approach but that didn't really work because now they actually have it's not Josh Okoge they have shooters out there who are going to knock stuff down and Jokic he's not the type of guy like say maybe a Rob Williams type who's going to like close out to the corner and make a great play uh, on a corner shooter so they really don't have much in the way answers they tried putting two on the ball on those double pick and rolls with KD and Aiton for Booker and so uh, they got a quick roll to the rim out of that. They went away from that. So it's like Michael Malone tried a bunch of shit and that nah, didn't work. <laughs> and I don't know if there is an easy answer right now. And they need to just, I think, outscore the Phoenix Suns. That's where I thought this series would end up. And well, that's and where it is now. On that front, a couple of really telling stats from cleaning the glass. Phoenix had a 118.5 first shot half-court offensive rating and a 200 transition offensive rating in game four. That's Booker again, dude, by the way. Like, like how does Booker have the energy 
to just push it up floor oh, and transition that, every that, single time like this. That he, I think it was in the half court, but he did this like running sideways three in the fourth quarter. That oh, I, going, I, to going to no, his left. No, that was the end of the third because he didn't I score in the fourth. It was, yeah, th- it was that run right at the end of the third that he had where he hit the two threes in a row. The second one was just like first there was that one, and then there was the one over the double team at the end of the third. Mm-hmm. That was the one where I was just like losing my mind at that point. It it was incredible, and like the shot making that Devin Booker has had and the passing which of course came to the fore so you have those two things in play and then for denver in part because they weren't getting any stops i brought up those offensive ratings denver actually played 88 percent of their possessions in the half court the good news for them they were a ridiculous 114 first shot half court offensive rating and then they did better off of off of putbacks overall they were more efficient in those circumstances the suns really couldn't score off their own offensive rebounds and and some of them happened in the same place and all that type of stuff but so for denver it's that idea of like you know you can think of it in terms of feedback loops if you want but but the their their half court offense in this game, I mean, Jokic was unbelievable. Murray had his moments in and out, but like it part of why, you know, back when they were full strength, they picked the Suns to win the series is that I didn't know if Denver could stop them. And they're they absolutely have a chance to win every game in the series, especially their home games. And they have two of those remaining if this series goes seven. It's just going to take a lot more from them defensively if Devin Booker stays at this superhuman or even close to a level. I mean, there were just so many ridiculous plays in this game. What about the end of the first quarter, the throw all the way down to KD by Booker with 2.7 left in the first quarter and the and he ridiculous just fadeaway. Christian Brown. Yeah. Yeah. The ridiculous fadeaway that KD hit there. And then, uh, I, I mean, some of those Booker shots were completely oh. ridiculous. I, I have a stat for you that I think is wild. I don't know if oh, you looked at Jokic's shot chart. Nikola Jokic attempted more shots from the upper paint and made more shots than the Suns' entire team. Suns, 10 of 18, which is very good from that area. Jokic, yeah. 12 of 19. Yeah, That's his insane. post-ups <laughs> just couldn't be stopped. DeAndre Ayton came out with with good energy early. At, he wasn't like unacceptably bad the way he was in game three. He was so but, much better than game three in the beginning. Yeah, but also he had probably three just like little dumb touch fouls on Jokic where he just like put like a flat hand on his back for no reason whatsoever and that's just automatically going to get called so he got himself in foul trouble and Jokic had his way with him particularly in that third quarter it it was pretty amazing that Jokic had 24 in the first half and then like took it to even another level in the third and I I just love the aggression that he came out with a couple of the threes that he took were really aggressive like he was just looking to score every time and I really appreciated that but Denver does put up 124 in this game some of that was through a little bit of easier looks late Phoenix mostly controlled things in the fourth quarter Denver was able to get back to the point at which they could they had the ball with the chance to get it through we'll talk a little bit about that but and Phoenix maybe won't shoot this well but they outshot the Denver Nuggets from three the Denver Nuggets only got up 22 three-point attempts as good as Nikola Jokic was and he did have uh, the 11 assists it was in the end a 132 offensive rating for Denver but because I guess that's the biggest thing that maybe I'm missing here is just how slow this game was Mm -hmm. that it was only 93 and 94 possessions that I think also actually plays to the advantage of Phoenix 
can considering Durant they're playing Booker. their best players like all of the minutes. Yes, I agree. Yeah, although I will say Murray and maybe to some degree Jokic were getting tired. I've I thought about this during the the game when we talked about it on playback, but I want to reiterate it here that one of the things that I probably have never appreciated enough about Jokic and his stamina is that he used to play water polo. I, because, I will note yeah. from my research after the game, it never it seems like he never played on a team, but he did play more casually. And water polo is hard no matter how much you play it. Okay. All right. Well that I'm glad you looked at that then. I thought that was that he actually like but still it's uh yeah, the whole not being able to touch the bottom thing seems pretty hard. It's so it's so hard. Like, <laughs> and I, and then you're just play. constantly fighting for position with these people who we're, just we're like, basically trying to drown you constantly. <laughs> yeah, and it's a, and like it's not like you're gonna beat them with quickness. Like <laughs> you're both in the pool, right? You're just you gotta just like out grapple people for position. It's just it's so fucking exhausting. Uh so yeah, Jokic in the post, he had the hook shot working. Anytime he got the ball on the move, he was able to just drive in and finish. There's probably some criticism of Jamal Murray. He did a little bit more late, ended up shooting more than 50% from the field, although that was no great result in a game like this. 28 points, 7 assists, plus 5, 42 minutes. But I did think, again, that he... Like, it's not like anyone else is going to create shots on this team, but I do think he needs to be more aggressive looking for his three-point shot. In particular, the one time that he did get that, he was able to get it off, but that was, they started running plays for that when they were down by so much that they just needed threes. And he is just always taking the opportunity to turn the corner and Shamit is staying with them pretty well. And he did an okay job finding Jokic on those short roll plays a little better, but still not perfect of getting the ball to Jokic when it was a mismatch or Jokic was ducking in. So I think I wouldn't be as critical of Murray as I was after game three. And also, like he had 28 points. You can't complain that badly. But I, I think he did tire. I thought he wasn't that good defensively. And he's also just not at the same level as Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, and, and his own teammate, Nikola Jokic, in the series, which that's fine. He's not as good as those guys. You just probably, it's not reasonable necessarily to expect that. from. We're pretty much on the same page there. For me, the criticism of Murray is that there are too many times, and it's funny that there, there are a number of players like this who are very good, but just simultaneously not as good as somebody else on their team, where he doesn't really think, oh, I'm playing with the best offensive player in the league. I should see if he has an advantage. Like There, there were still too few times where they got the ball to Jokic Jokic when he was guarded by Jock Landale or there was one possession where I was going crazy. Well, there were two. One where I was going crazy because Booker, who had four fouls, gets switched onto Jokic. And yeah, it's on the perimeter. But like Jamal Murray then goes into the like his trying a deep post up on Landry Shambach game. It's like, OK, like it, he made more of those than I expected, but it's still not not going to bend the defense or make so many of those that it's like it's the foundation of your offense. And then the other one was that on that late possession where they had a chance and I, I the, the solution to the problem was they ran that Murray Jokic high high screen and they just the ball just never made it back to Jokic when he had would have had an open three. You are seeing maybe a little bit here a slight limitation for Denver's offense in that Aaron Gordon is going to hang out around the rim and KD can be there on him and, and provide some rim protection that, and that's not going to 
totally slow down Denver when Jokic uh, is playing like this. But I think that is part of why that they they can't get up as many threes is because if Jokic and Murray are running the primary action, they only have two guys spotting up, not three around them. And if it is Gordon, that's a shot that they're willing to let him take. And he made one out of two in this game, but one was like a crazy late clock step back, I think. So yeah, only getting up 22 three-point attempts. MPJ had a rough shooting night. He, He did get more threes. Uh, got up nine in 41 minutes, uh, but wasn't able to convert him only to a nine. I thought MPJ did have some pretty good moments as a rim protector. And it's just tough when he's not guarding your Josh Okogis of the world and he's got to space out a little bit more. And there's just so much effort required at, at that point to do with these guys. But this is, I mean, these two games by Devin Booker, I keep coming back to like 20 and 25. And he followed that up by missing fewer shots than he did in the previous game. And having 12 assists and his passing and game was assists. central to the win. <sighs> And that that's absolutely incredible. And yeah, he's getting pretty darn good looks and he gets out in transition and he just stops on a dime. He gets amazing elevation. Like the, these are looks where if you take the snapshot when he shoots, you're like, yeah, that's a good shot for him. But still to make him at that level. And he started and, off this and game to, yeah. and to generate them at that level. Like the, yeah. the, the it takes so much work and he's playing, you know, he played 40 minutes in this game. One of the other big things is that they were able to keep their heads above water when he sat. But I mean, it. He's been otherworldly. Yeah, I'll also give some credit to Cameron Payne as well for just giving Phoenix a little bit more pace. He didn't play well, didn't close the game from a shooting perspective, but just the the fact that he'll push the ball up after makes every now and again and, and just let them get into something a little bit more quickly is really useful. See if I have anything else from the meat of this game. Oh, of course we do. Yeah. Push Bia? Yes. And thankfully, I mean, yeah, for some reason, selfishly, it would have been fun if the game was this close. The game not being decided by a technical foul given to Jokic. And it's a hard situation to parse. I I personally, Jokic, you know, pushing to the extent that he pushed him, you know, putting laying hands after the ball was already dislodged on somebody who is not in the action. Not a good idea. Can get called there. I hope whether it's publicly or privately, and honestly, neither would surprise me when you consider the con- the context here. It is not OK whether the person is a fan, a a, an assistant coach or a team owner for somebody to deliberately hold the ball to prevent the other team from running in transition. And it's, it's a delay of game and whether the league needs to reform that. And to me, it's not like a delay of game warning. That should be an automatic tech. Like if you if you hold the ball when it could be inbounded, there needs to be a punishment there. And that is. Not well, so, so you're saying that just because it's the owner that it should like if it was just some fan, there wouldn't I, be a penalty there. Right. I think there should be. That's, that's well, because here's the thing. You can't kick the owner out of the game. Probably I'm not, the fan. No, I'm, not, I'm not saying yeah. that I'm saying a punishment for the team. If you're no, team no I got that. you. But but the distinction I'm drawing is if one of your fans does something like that, he's subject to just getting kicked out. But right. that's because why you, that's it's why you team personnel, he's not, not going to get because the out. fans rooting for the team. Yeah. And they become critics. They, and I'm not looking for everyone to become a Steve Barton, but like the uh, I'm worried about even though hopefully, thankfully, these things don't happen too often. Like it creates a banana set of incentives. If you can if there is a situation where your team can can gain an advantage from you just holding the ball and slowing shit down like it's an entertainment project. That's bad. Like fix that. My feeling on this is both sides are so incredibly worked up about it which makes me think that it's not really that big of a deal either way (laughs) 
Mostly just, fair. Where it's just, it, it, I mean, it, it was a, a relatively innocuous play. Did Jokic deserve to get teed up? Like, I, I guess so. I don't, I don't know if Ishbia flopped or not. I think he, of course, he was a walk out at Michigan State, and that's. Uh, I, I'm guessing if you're like some shitty white walk on playing with the Flintstones, uh, yeah, just about all you're out there to do is take some charges and practice. I, so I really, he's got plenty I really of, hope somebody asked Draymond about it as a former Michigan State guy. <laughs> but but I do think like if you given where he was standing up, he was like his back the back of his legs are right up against the chair. So if he gets like pushed backwards at all, like you're your momentum is gonna carry you into the chair and then you'll just basically like be sat down by that. Like there's no way to like maintain your balance. But he also may have uh, may have flopped. I don't know. It it's just yeah, him holding on to the ball was kind of ridiculous. Jokic, he confirmed that he, because uh, Kogi went into the crowd, he was trying to get the ball so they could push it up uh, for an advantage. Some people are like, oh, it's Bia obviously held on to the ball, knowing that. he, he I'm, I'm 100% convinced that that's the case, that he understood the situation. 100%. I, yeah, I can't, I can't be 100% convinced by it. But, I mean, maybe he was just like, the ball came to him. He just was like more looking at a Kogi who just fell in front of him. I, I don't know. It's all... Can we just stop talking about it at this point? It's just well, we, if, we can if, unless unless Jokic gets suspended. Which well, I, yeah, I, I, if that happens, it would be just insane. Uh, there was a pool report on the subject. Here's what Tony Brother said: the ball went over to the corner there, and one of the fans was holding the ball. Jokic came to get the ball, grabbed it away from the fan. Then after that, he deliberately gave him a shove and pushed him down, so he's issued an unsportsmanlike technical foul. So he pushed the fan down. Brother said, "Yes, it's the same fan that had the ball, right?" The fan no longer had the ball, but it was the fan that started with the ball. What led to him getting the unsportsmanlike technical foul instead of being ejected? I just deemed the technical foul the appropriate penalty for what happened over there. He didn't just run over and hit a fan. There was some engagement, so I deemed the technical foul the appropriate penalty. Okay, we done on that? Yes, thankfully. And I don't want, I mean, we, we can only do so much on this, but there is so much awesome basketball to discuss here to focus on that is is unnecessary and another element of this game that we haven't really discussed we talked about how monty williams has leaned more on shooting which is an important takeaway from this and landry shamit's 19 points in 30 minutes of action tory craig who you and i have both advocated for starting and i actually still think is a better option meaningfully better option than josh kogi played seven seconds in this game yeah, that's crazy. And I guess the feeling with starting a Kogi was, well, we lost, we won the last game, but I do think it kind of makes things a little bit more difficult early on. Their thinking, I'm sure, is, well, we don't want Jamal Murray to get into a rhythm, so we'll put our best defender on him early. He's getting, he didn't he even got a second stint, I think, in, in the second quarter as well. He It was a bogus. He started the second half and then barely played after that. A few other notes I had from here. Kevin Durant probably haven't talked enough about his game. He got into really his assassin mid-range mode, I think, for the first time in the series where he was hitting really difficult shots that were very contested, rarely over Aaron Gordon. But when he was able to get another matchup, he was able to get to his spot and rise up and make shots where you're just like, that's a good contest. And he, he was making it anyway and they were trying to get him with murray switched onto him in the fourth quarter and denver was doubling out of that and that hollinger tweeted this i agree with him that given how well phoenix was scoring that they probably needed to just live with what durant was going to do there or at a minimum wait until he made his move to send help because just sending the straight double team and then you're kicking it around with to booker with a four on three and shooters 
around him that that wasn't going to work. KD had a better passing game as well. He's not the passer that Booker is uh, with some of these plays, but he did uh, enough to take advantage of double teams in this game. He really seemed to be running out of gas defensively in the third quarter, uh, not really making rotations at the rim in particular, but he was able to find a 37th wind in the fourth quarter to do enough, made some plays at the rim defensively that, that I thought were really important. Oh, there was a, a hilarious stretch in the first quarter. Denver identified it well. Durant picked up an early first foul and then just stopped trying on defense because he was afraid of picking right. up a second. And so they went after him and he became totally ineffective as a help defender. And understanding opponents, understanding their tendencies is so crucial in a playoff series. I thought they did that. They did that well. Another kind of thing, one of those that we noticed during playback, Contavious Caldwell Pope, who hit some big shots in the Denver games in the series, most notably game three. Sorry, game two. Missed both of his threes, four of four on twos. Just noting it. Last question before we talk about the series going forward here. Is Phoenix better without Chris Paul? Possibly. I, I think there are there are definitely some good decisions and some good basketball elements that are easier to find for the Suns without Chris Paul available. That being pushing the ball in transition, campaign has done a wonderful job. They can more consistently play with credible floor spacing, guys who not only can hit open shots, but who want to take them in the first place. However, having another capable steward, somebody who can run offense, like you could build, you could, you could get Conceptually, you could get eight, get Durant and Booker a little bit more rest. You could run some Paul Ayton stuff. Uh, he's been, Ayton's been really rough in these two games when Chris Paul has been unavailable. And I think that might be part of the reason, part of the reason. The problem and why I think you can really reasonably answer this yes is that the way to optimally utilize Chris Paul is so far away from what they will do when he's available that you might just be better off taking the club out of the bag. Maybe that's right, and you might even be better with him on the bench. Certainly the Chris Paul, and then we're also going to start Josh Okoge. That's just a, a terrible alignment because they just don't have nearly enough shooting and we saw that in game one and paul just isn't the spot-up shooter that some of these other guys are and that's just not his game and also landry shaman's been more useful than chris paul defensively in these two games where because chris paul can't guard jamal murray so now you have to have one of your two guards hang out on he's gonna guard porter jr i guess or it'd be kcp or and like chris paul also can't really close out to the three-point line so you're gonna get more threes up when he's in the game and the other thing i would say too is you're not gonna run with chris paul either. yes and I, the reason i thought they were fucked was that they i thought they just didn't have anyone else to come in behind him but when booker and kd could just play the entire game it's much less of an issue and so between the running, the three-point shooting, better defense through Shamit, and we'll see, Jamal Murray may well strike back in that matchup in Denver. I'm not ready to proclaim Landry Shamit, the guy that we thought that he was back way back in 2019 when we were killing Philly for trading him. Denver is a little bit different of a team, though. Like, Shamit would, like, I think Shamit can survive against them because the big problem with Shamit was him trying to play against, like, Luka Doncic in two playoff series in a row and just couldn't deal with him at all and he may also just not shoot as well from three so yeah i think they are better with without chris paul i, I think that's like if chris paul were just going to be a backup point guard yeah that would be useful but there is like there's a little bit of that westbrook lakers kind of vibe with him right now 
not that he's anywhere near that type of player, but he just is not, he hasn't been able to adapt well enough to playing off the ball the way actually I would say James Harden has in who's another guy who just is very much a caricature of himself. And Paul has tried to evolve a little bit, but he hasn't been able to do it well enough. And that's also maybe an indication or a, a symptom of the fact that he didn't get to play that much with KD. What's going to happen now? I think that Denver's support players and their just team overall, other than Jokic, who was amazing in this game, will play better in Denver. If I most likely outcome to me is this goes seven and I could see either team winning a game seven that we haven't seen a road team win a game in this series. If I had to pick one of these teams to win in six, I would pick Phoenix. I think they figured more out so far. If this game five gets close down the end, there are going to be some sphincters tightening in Denver. And there are, Chris Paul is not Kawhi Leonard. Nikola Jokic is better than anyone on that 2021 Utah team. But there are some vibes there. Number one seed against a loaded four seed wins the first two games. And although I think more decisively maybe than Utah won those first two games and now it's tied 2-2 and like the Denver could still even win a game six potentially like it's not like Phoenix was blowing them out in these games like Denver has the only blowout in this series so far in a game one that was much much different than this one will be and I think you do a good job of pointing out why that is. I do think there are a lot of guys in Denver who can play better. I don't know who's going to play better on Phoenix than what we saw in this game. So I think I would still go advantage Denver, particularly with two of the next three at home, particularly with, I think, the fatigue advantage at some point. Devin Booker or Kevin Durant are going to get tired, right? At some point, they might. There's just so much pressure on them to have just an unbelievable game. And I'm also not sure. I, I mean, maybe you can say that Phoenix, who has more answers for the other team defensively right now, would you say? I don't think I don't think the Nuggets have figured out the spaced version of the Suns at all. I don't know that they have any answers there. So I would say the Suns in a weird way. Yeah, I think so. I think that, like the Suns defended well enough to win in these last few games, and the Suns that Denver was stopping aren't the same Suns anymore. So yeah, I, I would say so that the Suns have at least there hasn't been a Denver game yet where well, I guess the first game when they just shot like crazy well uh, would be the one where they just made him look silly defensively. But that was a long time ago, again, against a different team. So it's, clearly this could go either way. But this these are also very close games. Denver had a chance in the last minute to tie. They're down three, got it with 46 seconds left off a good challenge by Michael Malone to reverse a out-of-bounds call. And then Jokic actually turned it over. Uh, that was a, a killer turnover and then he also uh, missed a pretty easy layup later on when going for the quick two and he, he had a couple other misses that he would like to have back and i mean he shot 20 or 30 from the field you can't complain too much but when Devin booker is going 14 18 and katie is going 11 to 19 and 11 to 12 from the foul line it's like you got to be perfect uh and so it's just I think, though, it's I, I keep going back to this idea that there are more Denver guys who can play better. And I just like sham it. I don't think Aiton is just, like he's just going to be what he's going to be in the series. But, but the Suns only have to do it two more times like that's to, to win this series. That, that That's the I don't think Devin. Oh, Parker yeah, they can for yeah. sure. I'm, I'm just saying of what's more likely, I still would mm-hmm. slightly favor Denver in the series. But I don't I don't feel confident in that the way Devin Booker and Kevin Durant are playing. And now that they have guys who are going to make them pay when they're double teaming, Denver is, is they don't have a ton of options. 
Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences. Hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz. Find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial. They're 10 to 15 year warranty, depending on the model. And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. We got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Speaking of not having a ton of options, the Lakers completely throttled Golden State. And this actually, although it ended up being a blowout, this was like kind of what game one should have been and just wasn't because Golden State had that late comeback at the end. But it was a very, very similar feel. Golden State played even dumber, particularly in the second quarter. Like they they were awful, but the Lakers also really made them be awful. And Anthony Davis just... Golden State has been completely unable to solve him and just a a lot of interesting stuff from this game. Where do you want to start? Now, two games out of three, Anthony Davis has been the best player on the floor. And he completely bent the Warriors offense yet again, you know, and the it, it wasn't a huge surprise. It was something you and I anticipated after game two that the Warriors brought in some wrinkles, including, you know, they started Jermichael Green and they brought Davis out on the floor. Darvin Ham is going to come up with some responses. And the most notable to me of those was just not having Anthony Davis on Draymond Green. And so he went back to being around the basket and the, the Warriors went back to not hitting really that many shots around the basket. Lakers changed up the matchup. They put Jared Vanderbilt on Draymond Green so they could switch pick and roll with Steph Curry and potentially Klay Thompson. They put Austin Reeves 
on Steph, they were okay with D'Angelo Russell on Clay, LeBron on Wiggins, and then it was AD against Jermichael Green, and he was able to hang out more on the baseline. However, early on, Golden State was looking great. They're up 40-29. to 29. With Curry out of the game, AD in late in the first, they go on a big run, take the lead after one, and AD is in this like weird, just super drop coverage, even on Clay Thompson. And then 40 to 29, Steph throws away a pass intended for Clay on a fast break. And AD then took over defensively, in part because they changed up the way that they were defending everything with him in pick and roll, went back to a similar look to what they had in game one. And AD's activity level was sufficient compared to game two to where he was able to dominate in that coverage out in the perimeter, force turnovers, but then also completely wall off the rim. And that, of course, led to more turnovers, more misses around the rim. And, and Golden State scored eight points in the last about eight minutes of the second quarter. They're up 40 to 29. They're down 11 by the end of the second quarter. And then the Lakers continued to roll from there. There was that brief stretch during the second quarter where it looked like the, the Lakers had that strong start and the Warriors weathered it. And after how well they played in game two, that it was going to be, you know, the, you know, the comfortable or not maybe not comfortable, but like a, a winnable game for them. And then the wheels just came off the wagon in a lot of different ways. The turnovers, I think, were a big part of that. And I think it was the third. There was just it was just disaster for Clay Thompson. He had six turnovers in this game. And when you think about how little the ball will be in his hands with like discretion, like if, if you were to build a normal kind of Warriors offense, then that, that would be a problem. The Warriors turned it over on 21 percent of their possessions. Poole had a number of them as well. A couple of sloppy Curry turnovers. And it was funny in the context going back to the game seven of the Sacramento series where Looney talked about in particular how you could tell that Curry was locked in because he he wasn't throwing he wasn't throwing those reckless passes and the biggest part of the warriors turnovers for me and this has honestly been the case pretty much the entire Kerr era are either the unforced ones which yes there's that but the low expected value passes where like clay thompson had i think three of his turnovers were this way where and draymond throws a ton of these normally where you throw the ball through a thicket but even if the best case scenario happened like there was one where he where clay threw it to looney like the best case scenario was that looney was trapped under the basket with anthony davis just swallowing him up you're not gaining that much in that sort of a circumstance and and a lot of that credit should go to the lakers no it should because things uh, there's a a lot of issues in the gears of that golden state offense when anthony davis is playing this well he got his hands on a ton of those little pocket passes when he's out on the floor defensively guys drive in oh i can't shoot it ad's there i gotta kick out well the pass isn't being expected or they gotta force it and and that gets uh picked off oh by the yeah. way do you want to know the number on this yeah the golden state warriors had nine deflections in game three anthony davis had 11 11 deflections that's unbelievable and the rest of the lakers had 11 too so the rest of the lakers had more deflections than the warriors and davis alone had more deflections than the warriors and he also had four blocks and three steals and he did that in three quarters worth of action mm-hmm. and contested 10 shots two uh five twos five threes as much as Golden State was terrible offensively, and then their fouling on the other end was atrocious, and they committed, gave, had, I think they had three technicals and a ridiculous flagrant by Moses Moody tripping AD to give up five free throws and the lakers shot a billion free throws which allowed them to set their defense and that was a big problem for golden state as well golden state's running was part of how they're able to 
do so much better. They shot 10 to 35 from three. Lakers were about 50%. D'Angelo Russell in particular was on fire in the first quarter. And that, that was actually huge to keep the Lakers close during that period. I thought this is more of a defensive loss for the Warriors. And, and this is the ultimate feedback loop series. So it, it all comes together with the fouling and the rebounding and the fast break for the Warriors. And then turnovers by the Warriors that lead to fast breaks and free throws for LA and rinse repeat again. But I think it's no coincidence that Draymond Green has been in foul trouble. The two games that the Lakers have won, AD was able to get going a lot, part at Draymond's expense. And I'll give him credit too there because he attacked Draymond Green and three times Draymond Green tried to draw a charge on AD and all three of those times ended up being a blocking foul. And AD personally put Draymond Green into foul trouble, which you don't see very often. And did you have a problem with any of those calls? Of course, the free throw disparity was massive. Again, many Warriors partisans complaining about the free throws. Well, I'll I'll talk about the free throws in general first and then get into that. So generally speaking, when I see if when you like, I don't see a free throw disparity. And especially if I watch the game and immediately think there's something wrong. I, I think about the officiating and like and the Lakers were a more aggressive team than the Warriors. And there weren't too many, maybe a couple of calls, especially when the Warriors were on offense where they didn't call something where they should have. Like there was one where like Curry got there were a couple where like Curry got hit on a drive and they could have called a foul. if He doesn't get a lot of those calls. A lot of guys don't. And so you have that. So, and so I would say overall, the Warriors got a, a at least reasonable, if not totally fair whistle. And if they're and when referees call more stuff, that hurts the Warriors because they are handsy and they don't they aren't the aggressors as much. So like that's just the way the game goes, the way it was called on those three. I thought the balance on them, like 3-0 especially was like that. That was pretty favorable for the Lakers. They were they were tough calls and they were tough reviews. Two of those three were reviewed. All of them were adjudicated in favor of the Lakers. One was reversed in the Lakers favor. One was um, challenge was upheld in the Lakers favor. If memory serves, like, you know, yep. like, the challenge was overruled. And and so and both of those were really, really tough. I, you know, like on the, the first I, I didn't one, think th- I didn't think the one that got overturned in the Lakers favor was tough at all. I thought that was just obvious. Yeah, because right out of the video dropping the shoulder yeah you you thought that yeah he just just not even close to in his path like yeah it's the idea that just because there's a violent collision just because he's dropped quote-unquote dropped his shoulder which yeah who is the person who drives to the basket with like a perfectly upright torso like this idea of lowering the shoulder is fucking ridiculous but yeah like green is just kind of on his path and then just yeah there's contact to the of shoulder of Davis to his chest, but he's not in front of him. Like he's like dream on green is the one creating that contact by trying to slide in front of him and not getting there. So yeah, that was the right call. I thought the, the bang bang one on the pass, I thought Draymond did get there, but that was like exceedingly close. And then the other one, which I think was Draymond's fifth foul, was like obvious blocking foul. No, wouldn't yeah, no, have no argument had any, whatsoever on any that. other possible idea there. But yeah, I, I just I'm not sure. As I was watching the game, I and we do this all the time. We know that people are very focused in on this shit. That the Lakers to shoot 37 free throws and Golden State to shoot 17, although a fair number of those came in garbage time. It's there weren't a lot of plays where I'm like, man, like the. these are bad foul calls on the Warriors like Jordan Poole anytime he is I guess he only got called for one foul in this game amazingly so so there goes my prediction he'd average 5.9 fouls per game in the series but there are a lot of guys even us out (laughs) so 
yeah, there are just a lot of guys who, who were following in this game and Draymond among them. Like he was, he was the best defensive player on the floor in game two. Davis has reached a level that he didn't even reach in game two in games one and three. A couple of other notes here. Schroeder going three of six from downtown. Lonnie Walker going two of four. He was in the rotation. I think they felt like they weren't getting enough offense out of Troy Brown Jr. And Malik Beasley, they don't trust defensively. So I think they gave Lonnie Walker a shot. I thought that I was... That was actually a pre-series prediction I had that he might make a reappearance, and, and that was a great adjustment by Ham. He played well and didn't get taken advantage of defensively, and, and they played Hachimura a little bit less also, I think, due to his defensive concerns. So I, the I guess the question now is how is Golden State going to respond? It seems like the Jamichael Green thing has run its course, so who do they put in the starting lineup? They don't really have a there isn't not even a perfect fit. There isn't even really a a, a great fit for anybody else. No, they could, there's they, no auto porter on this team. That's they could, a big they could try Moody. They could try Peyton. They could try DiVincenzo. I don't love any of those. And I think it's been a mistake by Kerr that in minutes that actually mattered, they have not even experimented with Jonathan Kaminga. I don't think he should start. But as an option, as somebody who can be aggressive in transition and like will just go after Davis, which is one of the best things you could do. So I, they, I wouldn't even say to start him, even if the experiments had gone well, but to not run them at all is a mistake. Yeah, now with their season on the line, they aren't going to feel comfortable playing him, I'm going to guess, either. Even Anthony Lamb, remember, he used to be a, a critical player for this team, and he got a little tick in, in that game three against Sacramento. Like His skill set actually probably fits the best out of any of these guys, but he's so unathletic, I don't think there's a, a trust level for him either. And Gary Payton the second, he... he can definitely help them push the pace and transition, maybe avoid them getting smoked by D'Angelo Russell at the start of the game. Although they, it was interesting, they actually went with Andrew Wiggins on D'Angelo Russell. I can't remember if they did that at the start of the game or pretty early on. It once was Russell early got on going. once he got hot. Yeah, and they went with Clay on LeBron. And Clay actually, I think, can guard LeBron all right. Like that's, I, I would probably think about sticking with that because Russell is a, quite a bellwether for this group. And but maybe they would start Peyton, but Peyton is just going to be guarded by AD and hang out in the corner. So now I like Peyton as a role man better than some of these guys. And so maybe if AD is guarding Peyton, then you can get into your pick and roll game and Peyton can slip out of there and get downhill and maybe make a decision better than a Jamichael Green could. I do think if they are going to play Jamichael Green, they should try to use him in pick and pop more. Like the, the he'll get open three pointers that way. I don't know if that's how you want to run your whole offense, but if he's out there, you need to use him that way. That's the purpose of having him there. Uh, I think probably DiVincenzo will end up being the choice though. And I think that would be the right one just again to get more shooting on the floor, force AD back onto Draymond and see if you can tire him out more, like letting him just kind of hang out uh, made things easier. And, but I mean, honestly, the biggest question of game four is simply LeBron AD, like how much energy are those guys going to have again? They didn't have any energy in game two. They felt like they did what they needed to do in game one. These home games, they come out and they're loaded for bear. LeBron, his effort level was awesome. And particularly as they make the big run late in the third, Warriors actually were within 10 and then they blow them out of the gym at the end of the third on a 10-0 run. And LeBron, just like the, the iconic thing was him running down the pass ahead to Wiggins and doing the Bo Jackson into the tunnel there. But he had a, a lot of great plays, uh, I thought, as well. Only had one block shot, but he just his overall effort level was higher. He got to the line, only had to take 11 shots. So he can, I, I think they're better when he's just saving more of his energy for defense. 
I mean, it's it just, I can't really make a prediction of what's going to happen in game four because it's just the Lakers are, and the Warriors both. I think maybe that's something I missed and Kawakami was writing about that, that the Warriors are older too. And particularly because they don't have reliable contributors off their bench, like they're not able necessarily to bring it at the same level every game either. They are not. And this series has confounded me at every turn. I wouldn't be surprised if it did so again in game four. That's why I'm super excited to do for playback. Oh yeah, for sure. And yeah, I think if Golden State is going to win this series and win game four, they just have to be better defensively and let that fuel everything. And Draymond not getting in foul trouble is the number one ingredient there. If he's going to get in foul trouble early, I don't know what chance uh, they have because they're they're I don't. And yeah, they could shoot better, too. They're 30 percent from three in this one, 10 to 35 in the competitive portion of the game. So if the Lakers are going to shoot them, then yeah, they're probably in trouble too. Like they'll just make more shots. But I think defensively is where like they need to make this a game that is kind of in the mud. And then while well, you have Steph Curry at the end of the game and they don't, that's kind of the thought. Steph hasn't been able to get going with the big game yet in the series other than the 12 assists in game two. Anything else on this one? No, I think that's about all I had. Oh, Austin Reeves isn't looking right physically. I think that's, you know, we, I think we've talked about it a little bit on the live shows, but that's something worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, he's got this sleeve and Gunny pointed that out as well. He was two for eight and he was still a game best plus 31. And as long as he can just be somewhat credible on Steph, like that was a, a pretty good adjustment and we'll see what they're going to try to do. Certainly trying to get more of Russell guarding Steph is something that they should try to do but clay thompson just has to play better jordan Poole was actually i thought started great and then he was awful again it just the the fact that he is just has this tertiary role offensively and just can't be efficient even in the minutes he's out there like they're always going to be the defensive concerns that's just a major problem for golden state let's see if i got anything else for golden state when they drive the one thing they have to do is they have to actually make ad guard them before making a pass there are a bunch of situations where guys would kind of drive in their own defender would be on their hip ad would sort of be like lurking around the rim and then they would just like stop there and pick up their dribble scared that ad was going to come over and block their shot well at a minimum like keep your dribble alive nash under the rim i mean pool and curry are probably the only guys who have good enough handles to do that but make ad actually guard you on the penetration as opposed to just being scared to shoot because he's there but not actually forcing him to guard the ball and then hey if you do that then maybe you have a chance to make a pass to a big man or you're in much better shape to make a pass to a shooter or even maybe you'll get ad to switch on to you if you're steph curry by then tracking back outside the rim it's a great not point, a panacea i'm happy yeah. you remembered to make it because i wanted to make it earlier yeah not a panacea by any no. means but it'll at least make things look a little bit better hey you might actually like get him to commit a foul we got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. New York and Miami. And I thought uh, Fred Katz put it really well. Yeah, you no, want to go, start with something? Go to, go to Fred and I'll, I'll say mine after. Yeah, I thought he just had a good angle on this, which I think is the best way I've seen to describe what's going on in this series, that New York is not making things easy on themselves. And they're going right into Miami's strengths this entire series. And that that's been really difficult for them. What I was going to say is I, I was impressed, especially uh, you and I, I watched this game after the fact I had an obligation that that part of the day with how thoroughly Miami controlled this game. Like they the Knicks cut it to 11 relatively early in the second half. And then after that, anytime they got it to about 13, Miami would get a three. They would get a steal and, and they would just take they would just take any remaining life out of it for the Knicks. And Struess had a big 19 points of course jimmy butler came back he had 28 on 26 shooting possessions because he was 10 of 11 from the line which jimmy butler can do thought lowry had some good moments out there so yeah i i I, that was for me the word was control like i just thought they controlled the game no it's true and whether it's julius randall trying to go one-on-one on on bam out of bio is it's so weird he had a little bit of success right at the beginning of his return in game two. And since then, it's really kind of calmed down. Same as in his matchup with Evan Mobley in the first round when he wasn't able to do anything. And it's just been a lot of one-on-one attacks from him against Adebayo. And more than that, even because the Knicks don't have a lot of shooting. And then when I talk about the strengths, it's not only the individual strengths of Brunson trying to go at Butler, who was back. And, and we'll talk about how he looked in a second. Or, or Randall trying to go at Adebayo. But then it's also just generally the Knicks trying to bash their heads into the paint. Hart, RJ Barrett. All these guys want to get to the basket. When you think about who's starting for the Knicks right now, no one is really an above-average three-point shooter as a spot-up guy other than maybe Brunson, and he's got the ball a lot. He's also not really looking to take the spot-up as aggressively as you know a normal number-one spot-up option would. And then you have a big center out there. So Miami, their philosophy has always been to protect the paint and will get out to shooters and their guards helping at the nail as well. So it's not only you got to go against these great individual defenders, but then you're also dealing with great helping guards uh, like Lowry or Struess will come and take a charge. Gabe Vincent uh, as well. So that was, and they didn't have RJ Barrett matched up uh, against Vincent. They went with Butler there. So that kind of messed up uh, RJ Barrett early on. So there really just doesn't seem, and the offensive glass, like that's in a series where the other team just can't score at all. The offensive glass means a lot more, but it's kind of just more of a nice sideshow against a team like Miami versus being kind of the primary thing in the Cleveland series. Exacerbating the concerns for the Knicks is that, yes, they were 8 of 40 from 3, 20%, not fantastic. Miami, a better shooting team overall, in my estimation, 7 of 32 for 22%. So this is the the Heat won this game going away and had a rough shooting performance overall. So you can't just say, oh, regression to the bean for us. That'll that'll take away, that'll push this margin. Like, I I think the, I I don't think that's going to do enough. And in terms of adjustments, it's tough, especially because Barrett played so well, not only in the first in the late first round, but also in the beginning of this this series because of how important those three point shots are. I would consider going going back to grind like going to Grimes and you you could choose Hart or you could choose Barrett. I would probably have Hart in the lineup. I know there are interpersonal reasons why that could be tough because I think he defends Jimmy better. But I, Grimes is not perfect. I think he would help. Yeah, he's still dealing with the shoulder. He missed some time as well. And this Knicks three point 
three-point shooting was atrocious in this game and but they have now shot below 33 percent in all but one of their playoff games wow and this is not a they got more threes up this year they deserve credit for that but who is the best shooter that they play who is the consistent guy i mean i guess it would probably be grimes quickly quickly though sprained his ankle pretty badly he's listed as day-to-day i'm not sure how much he's gonna play they tried playing him more with brunson i think to juice the offense that didn't really work though nothing did obviously <laughs> nothing but did. there isn't other than maybe jalen brunson there isn't someone that i just look at as a rock solid reliable shooter on this Knicks team and we've seen some teams the bucks are a perfect example of that where they've had a lot of teams where other than maybe Grayson Allen, they just don't knock down shots the way that they kind of do in the regular season because they're, maybe there's just more pressure in the playoffs. Maybe it's bad luck, whatever you want to say. But having great shooters is what I think is one of the biggest things that wins in the playoffs offensively. And so if New York can't punish the way that the Heat are defending them, I don't know what you do. Like they're going to, and Brunson is also struggling. Like he was limping late, looked like he may have re aggravated this ankle that somehow is just hurting him, even though no one has ever seen when he's actually sprained it. I'm not saying he's not hurt, by the way, but it's just an odd injury. And, you know, Toppin maybe is one of their more reliable shooters. And, but I mean, they're, they're just, they're not going to make a change with Barrett or, or at this point in the series. Like they're maybe in a game five, they might do something with that level of desperation. And of course, the the Thibodeau is in play here, Danny. Oh boy. The, after he was gave out a Thibodeau to JB Bickerstaff in the first round, it does feel though that the Knicks don't have many answers in potentially in game four. And especially now that Jimmy is back, it, it was a red flag when New York could barely beat Miami without Butler in game two when they're in a desperate situation when teams always win and almost always win by a lot. And Butler, like, how did he look to you in this one? Not 100%, but credible. Like, I thought he did, yeah. I thought he did pretty well, you know, working to his spots. I thought, and I thought his defense was better than I anticipated. So the gap in, in days really helped. And I mean, even without Tyler Hero, it's wild that like a, I don't want to give necessarily a percentage, but like, let's call it an 80 or 85% Jimmy Butler is more than enough to give them what they need. Yeah, the Knicks approach is going to be to not let Butler beat them the way that he did the Milwaukee Bucks, but he's also been dealing for them. And I think given, particularly in this game, we'll see if he looks better in the next game tomorrow. But given that he was a little bit limited, like he was definitely didn't have the same hard explosive drives that he did in the in the Bucks series and the first game of this series. But because the Knicks are going to double team him, it doesn't really matter maybe that he's not as explosive because he can just play more as a passer than he has before. Do you think the Knicks should reconsider their approach on him, at least in this current iteration it's tough because they're always going to be in a conventional pick and roll defense so you don't necessarily have to be as explosive he he can kind of just get the initial screen get to his spot and be under control and make a play or they're just going to put two on the ball anyway and then he'll he'll be able to play out that you're not they're not going to switch so i'm not sure that there's really another option maybe when they go to the isolation game but you can't have him isolating against someone like Brunson for example like if it's Josh Hart yeah I would let him play that one-on-one maybe Barrett so perhaps you can change up a little bit there and without quickly I mean maybe they'll go with McBride 
that's probably what they'll do. I don't think Tibbs will just go without a backup point guard at all, but Brunson will have to play a lot, and he's he's looking a little bit limited too. Of course, he and Randall will have to... Uh, those guys playing better is, the, I think, the best thing that they can hope to accomplish, but I don't know if that's possible for them in, until they start hitting some threes. And maybe I would try to get a little more atop and in, let him get that deep spacing from the four position. Because, I mean, they've been trying to attack Kevin Love. They've been trying to attack some of the smaller defenders, oh, but there's just too much help there. That was something that struck me during this game as after Cody Zeller had a dunk was the Miami Heat are an eight seed, which I, you know, like we sometimes lose track of that. Like they're they're the eight seed in these playoffs and they're getting closer to making the conference finals with Kevin Love as a starter and then Cody Zeller, who was on the scrap heap as a valued reserve. Like that's incredible. A few other notes, uh, Brunson, the thing that really stood out to me in terms of the injury is he just didn't have that same level of stop and start to get separation changing speeds one adjustment the Knicks could go to is to not have both Brunson and Randall off the floor at the same time the heat extended the lead during that stretch in the first half Butler just couldn't get a foul call in this game he was doing that thing where he drives through the guy's shoulder who's in theory not in legal guarding position they just weren't giving him the call uh I liked Eric Spolstra sticking with Kevin Love even after he got two fouls in the first is something you always point to of if the guy is probably not going to close the game just don't fuck up your rotation if it, or if it's a bench guy just stick with them and uh, that ended up working out fine the Knicks definitely were making more mistakes overall than Miami and during a period when Randall and Brunson were out but also butler and bam were both out at the start of the second the kyle lowry zeller pick and roll was dicing up the knicks and it just that's like i'm sorry if you want to win a series you need to come up with an answer for 37 year old kyle lowry and 67 year old cody zeller age approximate by the way on the pick and roll cody zeller actually is it's kind of amazing uh he's 30 yeah Yeah, this is, I guess, his 11th year in the league. No, probably uh, 10th year in the league. Let me see if I got any other things to talk about here. Haywood Highsmith made a corner three. Yeah. Uh, Brunson really was struggling to guard Max Struess. You mentioned uh, how he got off some the off-ball movement of Struess, again, with the ankle injury for Brunson. It's just not what he needs to be dealing with right now, but it's good that they are making him work. I thought Bam was very impressive on the offensive glass in this game. I thought it was also interesting that the Heat are willing to switch Cal Lowry onto Julius Randle very liberally, just feeling like he can kind of get underneath him, take some charges. That, to me, is an indication that they don't respect the jump shot of Julius Randle that much. And it reminds me, I, I talked about this a little bit, I think it was after game three, where Randle, especially like in it, if we're talking like staccato single possessions, he the the worst case outcome is not actually that. Like, it's not that bad. Like, he, he's a credible jump shooter. He has all these things. But it's like, I, I think that you can go, you could go to those sorts of things. You're not thinking he's going to match the way that Jokic does or anything like that. All right, I think that's it. I, I It definitely feels like Miami's in control right now. But a, a Herculean effort by the Knicks could in theory put them back in control as well but it it would very much surprise me particularly given their health situation if the Knicks are able to turn this around and also Tom Thibodeau has never been the guy to come out with just crazy new adjustments to like help his team score like I the that's the biggest problem is just that New York I think I read their half court offensive rating in this series as a 70 is that right for the whole series in this game it was yeah 70.4 and in um game two game two was 106.7 so yeah well that was 
maybe it was just this the last game then but yeah. yeah even game two with no butler that's a kind of a different animal yeah, yeah game one it was like a 90 okay so yeah i guess it was just that one game th- that i was thinking of then but the but, fact that it sounded plausible tells you something well they had games in the cleveland series where their first shot half court offense yeah, was there were games in that series where both teams were under 80 percent or 80 80 per 100 i guess that is what percent means in a very weird way all right that'll do it we'll be back tomorrow for playback golden state and the lakers and of course uh, with more great content for you on dunkdown prime and if you're listening on the public feed please give us a sub on dunkdown prime never a better time to be a member because we are going to have off-season outlooks on all 30 teams we're gonna talk the new cba we're gonna preview all of the relevant free agents we're going to do breakdowns of all of the top draft prospects and of course we will have the rest of the playoffs and free agency as well coming up here so please give us a shout out and and if you or yeah a shout out would be nice too actually and also a subscription if you are someone who's in financial circumstances where you don't feel like the full price is something you can swing we do have options for that as well if you look in my pin tweet there's a letter there that has more details on that talk to y'all soon we got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.